Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Probably one of your favorite texts, one of the times you wish you were a preacher. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As, Abraham, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Joseph, how many viewers did we lose at each reference to submission? Have you ever given marriage advice, either off the cuff or formally? Do do people come to you and say, like, what advice would you give? I can tell you every piece of marital advice that I have hated begins with this. You just have to. If you say that, I'm just gone. So you could, uh, you could mess with me. Like maybe everybody should send me an email right now with the subject. You just have to. <laughs> I think that'd be funny. Have you been given good marriage advice? When Rachel and I were engaged, uh, we were encouraged to ask um, some of our parents for advice. Not all of them, because we have too many, if you know my story. Um, and I asked my mom, and this is, this is interesting, and my mom, my mom has had a, a, both a tragic and a not great uh, storyline with respect to marriage. And um, she said, you cannot expect anything that you haven't asked for directly. And I still struggle with that. If my wife was sitting in here, she would say, amen. What if the definition of submission is for the other without initial thought for self? Would it still bother you? Relationally, that's what we're getting at. In the first service, we uh, listened to um, Blessed Assurance, which talks about perfect submission twice, because perfect submission is to God, which leads us into lives of life, first by reconciling us with him and then teaching us about the flourishing life that he purchased for us and then directs us in. What if submission means for the other without thought for self? You cannot do that every single time. You notice Peter's not saying when. Hopefully you notice Peter's not speaking to women. He's speaking to wives. Not speaking to men. He's speaking to husbands. I think the, the backbone of the teaching on love transcends marriage, but he is speaking directly to those that are married in the same way that he talks about what does it look like to suffer if you're a follower of Christ? What does it look like to be a citizen of the area that you reside in and be a follower of Christ? What does it look like to be an employee and be a follower of Christ? Here, what does it look like to be a spouse and a follower of Christ? And I started this week in my, in my studying for this, I began 
to highlight all of the promises in chapter 1 and chapter 2 because when he says likewise, he's fully expecting that you remember 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2. Maybe you don't. I have no idea. Some of you probably know it quite well. And I couldn't get through even half of chapter 1 because there are so many overlapping beautiful promises. Just in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1, listen to this. Because Peter's fully expecting that you are thinking about this, and when he says likewise, you call to mind things like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If that's true, it affects every moment of our lives, and certainly our relationships. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice, at the end of our passage in chapter 3, he says, heirs to the grace of life. Heirs to what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the one who keeps it? Nothing can be taken from him. So if that's true then it's going to affect all of our relationships. And for those of us that are married, very much our relationships. Did you, did you get irritated at the uh, quiet and gentle? Peter's contrasting something. He's not saying every good thing you do will be done through a gentle and quiet spirit. Sometimes we need words. Perhaps you've heard this. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi. People actually debate whether it was... He, whether he's the one that coined this term. Hopefully you've heard this because there's a truth in it, but it's not, um, it's not the whole truth. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And the reason I bring it up here is because Peter is talking, I think, more specifically to women who are married to men who are not followers of Christ. How do I best talk to them about the gospel? Probably your actions are going to matter more than your words, Right? What is that stat? 80% of our communication is nonverbal? That stat certainly is before we were all wearing masks, but I think we know the point, right? Our actions, our actual love is an incredibly large part of our testimony in our own homes with just our spouse in the room or not even in the room and certainly in every other place in life. Sometimes words get in the way, don't they? Sometimes words mess things up, right? That's the point Peter's making. He's not attempting to speak as a first-order command. I'll explain that in a second in, from the text, like from the actual Greek. This is not like do not murder. That's two words in Hebrew. Don't murder. Like, okay. This is a guide in light of Jesus' coming and then second coming of how to interact with those closest with us and specifically marriage. So, What's at, what likewise we learn. We learn about love. Love in the context of marriage, and I think we can expand that to any close relationship, to your relationship with Matthew, as an example. Love is both action, choice, feelings, and ability, willingness to change. I'm fond of saying that love never says this is just the way that I am. I know that's challenging to hear. Perhaps love says this is just the way that I am, 
but I don't want it to be that way. We, we simply need to add some humility to the statement for it to become a Christian statement. But I believe that, willing, that love not only is action, it's not only choices, it's not only feelings, it's also the ability and the willingness to change over time. It takes a long time. Although I'm curious, do you think it requires more energy to stay the same or to change over a 10-year period with respect to whatever part of relationships you want, whether it has to do with dishes or whether you're good at cleaning the stovetop, I'm growing in this, I think, or words, do you think it takes more energy to stay the same or to change? I think it's perhaps quite clear, my own thoughts on this. I clearly have a horse in this race. Since the pandemic, I've invited feedback, and sometimes that has been a terrible idea. And sometimes it's been really fun. You can consider that question. And learning is painful. Learning in a long-term relationship of love, how to love that person well, what we need to stop doing, what we need to start doing, which, by the way, includes being clear about our needs. Back to my mom's point. Love is not simply reacting to the other. It's also telling them how to love you well, because all those who love you long to love you well, maybe only on some days, but ultimately. And it's painful. It's tiring. I remember when I was 16, what it meant to be a good child, sibling, friend. And it's way different now with my siblings and my parents and my friends. And sometimes it's really, it really stings. Um, Six years ago, I went to a leadership conference and uh, one of the speakers said, you should ask if you're brave, so I felt challenged, right? people in your life to share with you your blind spots. And I asked um, the man who was best man in my wedding. Some of you have been praying for him. He's doing really well. He's improving slowly. I asked him for a blind spot, and he says, when I ask you how you're doing and you're not doing well, you tell me, but you tell me in such a way that you want me to be convinced it's fine and there's nothing I can do. And he's right. Those of you that are friends with me, Like, you know that I do that, naturally. And I'm working on it, and I've been working on it. I literally, when I'm talking with him, I'll just stop talking mid-sentence. Like, the sentence will be in there, but you don't have to worry about me. But I think it's all good because of this. I'll give a Christian answer or circumstantial answer, and I'll just cut myself off because I long to let him care for me. I asked Dan Kerwin, who was working here at the time, and he said, you're a good listener, but you're not as good of a listener as you think you are. Ouch, and correct. He was right. He is right. Um... And I think by God's grace, I'm getting a little better. I asked my wife and my daughter separately. My daughter was eight at the time, and they said the exact same thing. That was humbling. It stung. But you know, and, and here's what they said. I didn't say it in the first service. I don't know why. Well, because my daughter was there. Is that why I didn't say it? Should I not say it? Should I say it? She had forgotten what she said. She asked me after the service. What she said was, when you sigh... I sense your disapproval. Now, I still sigh, but now she asks me why I'm sighing. And frankly, it's mostly because of one of you that I should be praying for instead of sighing about. And my wife said the same thing. It stung a little bit. It stings to learn to love well in any long-term relationship and especially in marriage, but it's worth it. Peter, in talking about uh, living in an understanding way, is implying listening. Peter, in talking about submission, remember the definition, for the other without initial thought to self, 
is saying it's going to sting a little bit. I don't think he was as bothered by this word as many of us are, but I think uh, he understood that it was going to sting to submit to authorities, to submit to one another, to quote the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.21, and to learn lives of submission where we think of the other's good first. And I have a couple of questions about this, and these are to encourage you in any relationship that is at all intimate, but especially for those of us who are married. Are you curious? This is a terrible image for this. Um, it's a great image, Lida. You picked the right image. Spot on. It's a bad image because Curious George, when he gets in trouble, like doesn't deal with it at all. But here's my question. Are you curious about learning to love the neighbors in your life better? Be a good listener. You could probably get a little better. Some of you are great listeners. I could get better. You know what I'm learning is I interrupt people a lot. And it's because I assume they'll remember everything they were about to say and they won't mind. Both of those things are often not true. So I am attempting to stop myself from interrupting. What about you? When Peter says, in an understanding way, and we'll talk about weaker vessel in just a second. When he says in an understanding way, when he says be subject, when he says quiet, gentle spirit, when he talks about adorning that's actually beautiful, he's assuming and including listening in that. And are you willing and able to change? It'll take a long time. It'll take humility. It'll take kind discussion with your spouse or with your friend or with your sibling, with your parent. This is especially true of adult parent-to-child friendships. For that love to grow into actual friendship requires mutual submission, humility, honesty, probably a good deal of stinging, and then it's so beautiful when parents are able to be adult friends with their children. As you experience change as a couple, these things will uh, really come front and center, won't they? Like when you're if you have to move, it's one of the three kind of medium-level stressors in life, move, job change, or, or have a child. They feel like big stressors, but I'm, I'm calling them medium because a sudden death would be worse, right? When these things happen, resentment goes up, our, our emotions get disproportionate. It's harder, and all of those are opportunities to learn to love well, and all of those are opportunities that are probably going to sting, Right? And do you pray for your spouse? And how do you pray for your spouse? I'll talk about that a little more in a minute. I wonder if we pray too much about the circumstances of our marriage and we ought to instead pray for their heart in Christ and that they would sense the filling of the Holy Spirit, that they get more of God, though that's not theologically super way to say it. It is often how the Apostle Paul would pray for the churches in the New Testament, that they would sense and realize their union with Christ in a profound way. So this is about learning and how Christians respond in relationship. So we learn about Christian beauty. And by the way, I mean, the context of this needs not, don't miss the context, even though I think you understand the truth of this, and I think you wouldn't even argue with it were this not written in a mostly traditional context, but braiding was something that was incredibly ornamental in the first century. And you could spend hours and hours getting it right. Peter is, again, not offering a first-order command. By the way, this is the only actual command in these seven verses. The only imperative, grammatically, linguistically, is don't let your adorning be this. Everything else is actually a participle in the Greek. 
And that, that actually makes it worse, by the way, that it's not a command, because Peter's fully expecting that the implication is, if all of this is true, if the good news is really this good, that I'm an heir to the grace of life, then of course that's going to affect how I listen to and abide with and learn to love better all those in my life, and especially my spouse for those who are married. But when he talks about beauty here, contextually, he's saying, what's going to last? What's actually more beautiful? Spending X number of hours, and he doesn't, pre- he's, not being pres- he's not describing it in a prescriptive way because he knows that you get the point because you're intelligent. And I know you get the point because you're intelligent. How, much import- how important is it to work out and be tan versus learn to pray for your spouse and learn to love them better and better? I'm not saying this is unimportant. The Bible speaks regularly about the importance of both avoiding <laughs> lives of death with respect to our body in terms of gluttony or being totally out of shape, etc. Um, and I know we have medical issues and all sorts. This is a complicated conversation. The Bible sp- speaks strongly and regularly about the importance of health as much as we can enjoy it this side of heaven amidst the curse. But what is so much more important is the internal. And so, I, I mean, in a basic way, is it more important to your marriage that you go to the gym or that you pray? And people are like, well, both are important. You're right, false dichotomy but one is more important than the other. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is one where, again, there's only one imperative in it, though we quote it all the time as though it were an imperative, and it's the, the section in 1 Timothy where Paul is writing about Scripture being inspired by God. But the command in the text is, continue in what you have learned to Timothy, knowing from whom you learned it. Do you know who Timothy learned the good news from? His mom and his grandma, who knew the heart of what Peter was talking about. And they loved him well. Because if they simply taught him the gospel well, but they weren't kind to him, what are the chances that it would have sunk in? And he would have not only become a follower of Jesus, but been so passionate about being a follower of Jesus that he became a pastor. Lois and Eunice knew the importance and the truth of verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. If you're familiar with... um, the book of Genesis, you might think Sarah is a funny example. I kind of do. The, the reference Peter's making is to actually when, uh, for at least the second, if not the third or fourth time, they discuss the fact that she's going to have a baby very late in life, and she laughs. The verse in chapter 18, verse 12 of Genesis, when she calls Abraham Lord, she's also laughing at the idea. And the way she responds earlier to this promise with respect to her slave was not very good. Let's just leave it at that. But here's why Peter's using an example. Not simply because she called him Lord, but much more importantly because we are the answers to the promise God gave to Abraham and to Sarah in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. We are the stars that Abraham looked up and saw, and God said, your children will number more than these stars. We are them. This is where Peter slides in an Old Testament reference, fully expecting us to be moved by it. How encouraging that thousands of years later, we are part of the fulfillment of that promise. So we learn about Christian beauty and what it is and what it's not and what will last. And I have an encouragement for you. And it's this, pray in your lane. You know what I mean by that? So if you're going to utilize 1 Peter 3 
for your prayer life, and you're a husband, you utilize the verses towards the husband and not the verses to the wife, and vice versa. And by the way, weaker vessel, if a woman can't own property, and it's far, 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 far easier for the husband to divorce the wife than for the wife to divorce the husband, and in most cases, though not all, the man is physically stronger than the woman, those are the dominant reasons Peter calls the wife the weaker vessel. Because if a man divorces a woman, her life gets exponentially harder in the first century. We could discuss the 21st century, but in the first century, but, it, but for the man, really nothing changes. So that's what he's getting at. And I think we understand in an understanding way how much that involves being curious about loving better, listening, being willing to change. When you pray for your spouse, pray for their healing and their wholeness, not the circumstances of your marriage. And I think your prayers are better spent with respect to marriage, on your own heart. Oftentimes when we have uh, people in distress in the church, I'll encourage them to meet with a prayer partner and I'll say to the prayer partner, don't pray for the other people in their life. There's enough healing and enough opportunity for growth in you alone to occupy as much time as you're willing and able to spend in prayer. In my own marriage, there is enough opportunity for healing and growth in me. When I pray for my wife, it is that she receive all of the gifts that Christ purchased for her and and be gripped by them. And I ask the Lord to teach me to love her well. Pray in your own lane. Not all of these verses are helpful to you in prayer for your spouse. You know what I'm saying? I hope you do. I hope that was clear. If it wasn't clear... Let's just stick to this one. It doesn't get much more New Testament application than this. God, help me to love you and others well. So what we're learning about is Christian beauty and real love, and the implications of this, largely drawn from 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2, is that we're actually freed from idolatry. Um, In the 21st and the 20th century, the only centuries I'm really experientially familiar with, we idolize romantic love. The gospel of Jesus has such a profound answer from that. It frees us from the idolatry of it because another person can't complete you. Jerry Maguire was totally wrong, and you know it. Another person cannot and should not, and it is not able to complete you. Men and women who are married know that you actually don't need your spouse, and when you recognize that, I don't mean leave. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, when you recognize that your entire being, the most important part, the deepest part of your being is met through relationship with Christ that actually frees you into love. Those of you that are single, you're entirely complete in Christ now. Your calling as a human being in this world is in no way dependent upon marriage. The Apostle Paul writes about this extensively in Corinthians, especially in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7. Jesus both taught about this and applied it, we're freed from an idolatry of need for other into choice and emotion and action and feelings, which is real love. This applies to your good friendships, your very close friendships. This applies to your relationship with your parents. And especially to Peter's point, it applies to your spouse. And this is part of the reason that we, that we need to bring the gospel to bear as, inst- 
as specifically as we're able with help on our past. We need to receive the healing of Jesus, which is integration and interpretation from our past, because then when our spouse isn't living with us in an understanding way or submitting to us with a good definition of submission for the other, before thought for self, when we haven't dealt with our past, how disproportionate are our actions? This is why we have to, as best we're able, shine the gospel's light on our fears about the future. Even now, when it feels so, especially now, when the future feels so foggy and challenging, we entrust in prayer and in mind and in conversation our future to the Lord. And you know what that does in marriage? It blocks resentment. Because your fears of the future sometimes sneak in semi or subconsciously and they drive emotions or gut-level anger straight through the roof. Not because of what your spouse said or didn't say or did or didn't do, but because we have not yet leaned into the healing and guidance of Christ. This is why, as best we're able, we want to invite the Holy Spirit daily. The Holy Spirit doesn't need the invitation to pursue you and save you, but when we invite the Holy Spirit through prayer, through study, through conversation into our lives, our daily lives are freed into him. And then our expectations are not on our spouse. And the energy level drops in a good way. And we don't put on them our anxieties and shame. All of this is because we are heirs of the grace of life. Heirs to what? Back to chapter 1. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In light of that, we learn to love well, which involves a whole lot of things I didn't mention and some things I did. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, father us in all of our relationships and guide us. Jesus, we praise and thank you for your work which reconciles us to you and restores us and restores our hearts by giving us new hearts. Holy Spirit, remind us of this new covenant that we might move into relationships free of idolatry of them and freed into the new life we receive in you. Amen.